Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and Elon Musk are just three of the names that Larry Sonsini has advised. Hey everyone, welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and today I'm speaking with Larry Sonsini, who is the founding partner at Wilson Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, Silicon Valley's premier law firm, which was founded in 1961. Sonsini personally worked with legendary companies, including Sun Microsystems, Intel, Google, HP, LinkedIn, Netflix, Salesforce, Dropbox, Twitter, and hundreds more. Sonsini is also the vice Vice Chair of Santa Clara's Board of Trustees, so that's his Santa Clara connection. Sonsini got his undergraduate degree from UC Berkeley as well as his law degree in the 60s, and he's focused on corporate law, corporate governance, securities and mergers and acquisitions. He's been instrumental in many of the financings, IPOs, mergers, acquisitions, and other key transactions of Silicon Valley. A fun fact is that Sonsini's son, Matthew, is married to the sister, Lisa, of the previous guest on this podcast, John M. Sobrato, who's the board chair at Santa Clara. A 2006 New York Times profile called Sonsini powerful but rarely center stage. While Mr. Sonsini is hardly a shrinking violet, he cultivates the image of Silicon Valley's most ubiquitous supporting player, often preferring to say his lines behind the scenes. It's not my job to be in the newspapers, he said in a telephone interview. I think my client likes me to be a trusted advisor with a high degree of integrity and stay out of the limelight. In this conversation, we discuss what Sonsini has learned about leadership from CEOs he worked with, what innovations he believes will define the future, the ethics of entrepreneurship, the history and future trajectory of Silicon Valley, how he chooses to spend his time and advice for students, and much more. This was truly a special opportunity to do this episode, and I'm excited for you to listen. So let me know what you think and enjoy the conversation. Cool. Well, Larry Sonsini, welcome to podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So to start out, what were you considering for a career when you graduated college? Well, uh, pretty early on in college, I attended uh, UC Berkeley. I was focused mainly on two paths. One, believe it or not, was medicine. uh, And the other was business or law, mainly law. And uh, the first couple of years at Berkeley, I was pretty much on a quasi-pre-med path. But uh, entering my junior year, I began to realize that I was very intrigued with the idea of of corporate law and made that choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, how did you make the decision to to come to Silicon Valley and kind of go with the more entrepreneurial route? Well, it's truly an entrepreneurial story because... Uh, when I graduated from Berkeley Law, I pretty much was focused on uh, the area of corporate law, corporate finance, and securities. And I thought for that kind of practice that I would probably have to be in a big city like New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles. Uh, however, uh, one of my key professors, uh, Professor Dick Jennings, who at the time was a leading professor on the U.S. federal securities laws, told me that something interesting was happening down on the peninsula here. 
and uh, mentioned that there was a, a gentleman named John Wilson uh, who was starting a, a very early firm that was going to focus on areas that I was interested in. So sure enough, I uh, decided to have an interview with John and the rest is history. They were just uh, a few lawyers uh, that were informally uh, working together and uh, they promised me the opportunity to do what I wanted to do, practice corporate and finance. And we talked about something that was happening at the time and that was the growth of uh, technology, entrepreneurialism, and, and venture capital, which I found very intriguing. So in a way, it was a risk uh, to take, uh, but it was exciting uh, and an opportunity to um, get involved very early on, on the area of the law that I uh, became fond of. Mm -hmm. And now it seems so obvious that everything was uh, incredibly successful, right? The the worldwide that Silicon Valley became the worldwide hub for innovation, but it wasn't necessarily guaranteed in the in the what sixties and seventies, right? So, kind of how did you how did you find and partner with these amazing entrepreneurs and go from being such a tiny uh, firm to being like the law firm for startups? Oh, that's a great question, uh, and it's a wonderful story. Um, it was a combination of factors. Of course, being in the right place at the right time uh, was, was an important factor. But also, uh, very early on, um, I started to represent and get to know uh, some entrepreneurs uh, and, uh, and some of the early venture capitalists. And it became very clear that we had an opportunity to build something. Now, we didn't know how big it would be. Uh, but we started to work together, uh, the entrepreneur, the venture capitalists, and the service providers, uh, such as the, you know, the legal industry and the accounting industry and some of the investment banks. And we began to see the scale of innovation that was coming. Uh, it was exponential growth. So very early on, I got the idea that uh, we wanted to grow with these companies. Uh, we wanted to be uh, the legal advisor at all stages of growth. And that uh, then required a major commitment to expand. So the combination of the opportunity, uh, the changing times, and the unique culture uh, of, of the entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists uh, and we lawyers uh, that developed this symbiotic relationship that gained a lot of momentum. It was a unique event. Mm -hmm. were, there, were there any moments uh, along the, the journey that were really uh, challenging or that you considered like failures that you learned from? Oh, there's so many moments, of course. I mean, uh, one of the beauties of the Silicon Valley recipe is that that failure is going to occur, but it's not a stigma, it's, it's an experience. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, um, you know, uh, how to back a company, uh, how to bill for services when there is very little money to pay for them, uh, and how to grow with those companies were all the kinds of challenges uh, that we all had to come together. What's interesting is, um, through all of that, we, we developed the methodology of how to build these companies uh, and uh, developed a culture in the valley of that, that was very unique. Uh, it was entrepreneurial. Uh, it was based on diversity. It was based on transparency. 
and it was merit-based. Um, and all of those factors uh, were, were evident and, and started to help us scale. But certainly along the way, uh, you know, many companies failed, um, and, but uh, you learn from that. Mm-hmm. And what were maybe some of the more impressive like leaders that you worked with and any leadership lessons you learned from those people? Well, there were many, and I was very fortunate to have been involved and represented him. Certainly, I remember Bob Noyce, uh, who uh, started Intel. Mm-hmm. And what I learned from Bob uh, was uh, how to be humble. Uh, he was a very intelligent uh, man, but uh, he was humble and generous of thought. Um, there was uh, another great entrepreneur and a good friend, Ken Oshman, uh, who started Rome Corporation. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ken could be very disciplined and very imaginative and creative. Steve Jobs, um, who I represented for over 35 years, was one of the quickest studies I've ever met, uh, who had a passion and stayed committed to a passion, to a vision. Mm-hmm. and uh, was uh, a person who could not easily be distracted from his passion mm-hmm. uh, and always pushed the edge of the, edge of the envelope. Uh, mm-hmm. I learned a lot from that. Um, and there were many others, Al Shugart, who started Seagate. Mm-hmm. And I watched how he built scale, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, and many people in the semiconductor industry at the time. You know, people like Wilf Corrigan at LSI Logic, T.J. Rogers at Cypress, uh, and then some of uh, the early semiconductor people um, who became venture capitalists like Don Valentine and Pierre Lamont. Uh, and I learned from them uh, how to uh, uh, continue to explore the unknown, how to uh, not take uh, a negative uh, too seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, many, many stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what do you think some of the main differences are between uh, Silicon Valley startups that have become huge, well-known names and those that have failed? Are there any common patterns that you've noticed from working with so many companies? Oh, uh, you know, sometimes it's all about time. Oftentimes, you can have a great idea, a great entrepreneurial concept, and the market is just not ready for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times, it's it's a cost-benefit uh, problem, a great idea that's too expensive for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, other times, it's just competition. Um, sometimes, it's uh, inability to sustain innovation. Uh, one of the key things that I've learned uh, uh, in representing these companies and these entrepreneurs is that you have to be able to adapt to change. Mm-hmm. You have to constantly reinvent. And sometimes the failure to do that in a timely manner. So uh, oftentimes uh, the most successful company is not, not the brightest idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you have an idea, then you have to really build the infrastructure attracting the right talent, developing a business culture of ethics and integrity and hard work, mm-hmm. uh, developing commercial relationships that are compatible, dealing with competition. It's, it's, it's a complicated uh, 
formula to become mm-hmm. successful. Yeah, on on that note of kind of like ethics and innovation. So, uh, you know, Steve Steve Jobs is famous for both his creative, innovative spirit, but also um, for you know sometimes having questionable interpersonal relationships, and as well as we, we see a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are so hard driving and ambitious that sometimes that means kind of stepping on other people's toes or uh, pushing their way into innovation, right? So, kind of is is it necessary to be uh, this kind of like dominant visionary type leader to be innovative or can you just be like a a normal kind humble person or does that does that mean you're lacking in some sort of no of course of course uh, it doesn't require that type of personality you can be humble uh, and be very successful Uh, and you also have to delineate the difference between aggressive interpersonal behavior and integrity and ethics Mm -hmm. Uh, one does not miss necessarily mean that the other is not present. Um, uh, oftentimes, uh, one's passion and the pressure to drive and to achieve uh, creates impatience uh, and lack of communication with people. I think Steve was that way. I found Steve to be a very ethical person uh, and had very high integrity to his vision and and his. Uh, but he could be impatient. But his impatience was just due to his passion and his uh, fear of failure. Uh, so you have to recognize that all types of personalities exist. No one particular personality type uh, uh, is going to be more successful than another. I think the commonality is uh, the desire to aspire, uh, the desire to take risk. Uh, the desire to be fully committed and passionate, mm-hmm. uh, the willingness to work hard and to set aside a lot of personal demands, those are common characteristics. But the personality, the interpersonal behaviors are all over the map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it makes me think in one of my classes, we just talked uh, at a case study on, on Theranos and the um, and essentially how like Elizabeth Holmes, um, her innovation and creativity was all there, but it ended up being just a completely unethical situation that involved fraud and lying and all that sort of stuff, right? And it's easy to kind of say like, oh, just just that company is is the problem, but arguably a lot of a lot of Silicon Valley companies have to you know overpromise huge things like we've seen WeWork recently, right? And yeah, so kind of like what's the what's the balance between having this this huge vision and then being really like realistic with what's what's actually going on in your business because it takes a little bit of both. It does, but I don't think you need or should ever compromise integrity, ethics, or transparency. Uh, that's not required to get ahead. In fact, I think the opposite. I think that. Uh, businesses that adhere to high standards of conduct, Mm -hmm. uh, that adhere to good principles of integrity and ethics actually succeed more than, definitely will succeed more than the contrary. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and because when you build a business, you're you're working with people, Mm -hmm. you're working with the public, you're working with many stakeholders besides just investors. And you need a culture uh, of success that is predicated upon building a sense of confidence. And that means to me uh, good behavior. Uh, And where good behavior is absent, uh, I think that failure is inevitable. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've you've talked a good amount before about kind of some of the the secrets or the the recipe of of Silicon Valley, right? And things like like universities and uh, like funding and uh, kind of the elements in creating a whole ecosystem. Um, like, do you think Silicon Valley is still still on the upswing, growing and improving, or are like are are we going to see kind of like a leveling off? Do you think of those those sorts of Ingredients. I remain very optimistic about uh, Silicon Valley and the entire technology industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been in this now, this is what, uh, 53 years, mm-hmm. six decades. And I must tell you, every decade I was asked the question, do you think it's going to continue? Uh, and so to me, uh, I, I've heard the question before, but I answer it the same and I say yes. Um, as long as we keep the recipe and the elements there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need an entrepreneurial culture. I think we have it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you need uh, capital uh, that is willing to take risks. We have more capital today than we've ever had. Mm-hmm. I think you need universities mm-hmm. uh, to really provide technology support, mm-hmm. education, uh, the graduate students, the mm-hmm. efforts in engineering. And I think that if you look around the valley, you will see that the contributions of Santa Clara, Stanford, Berkeley, UCSF, others are as strong as ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need large, cor- large corporations to support and build management, and we have them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you certainly need uh, a, a culture of diversity and ethics, uh, and I think we have that too. Now, we're going to go through periods where things get a little out of balance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have more capital uh, and valuations get unrealistic mm-hmm. because of competitive competition. Um, sometimes uh, we don't have the right balance from a regulatory perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes entrepreneurs lose sight uh, of, of maintaining uh, their vision uh, and sometimes greed appears. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you look at each of the elements, they're there. Mm-hmm. I think you have a country that uh, really uh, fosters um, the commercialization of technology. Mm-hmm. I think uh, our capitalistic system uh, is, is sound, uh, notwithstanding the political turmoil we're going through. So I'm optimistic that we will continue to grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one question I have on that role of corporations there is almost if the ingredients of Silicon Valley have worked too well to where now we have companies, you know, like Amazon or Google that um, essentially control so much of the market that, you know, Amazon can make the sellers do whatever they want. Um, Google, um, the the companies with the data, maybe we could say, are the only ones who, uh, for for, like, for example, in self-driving cars could be like incredibly innovative, right? Because you just need so much data to drive innovation. So, like, do you think that's a problem that there are so few kind of enormous corporations? Well, I think that we are going through um, the digital age, uh, the internet age, uh, in its early innings, and you're going to have uh, different perturbations. You're going to have. Uh, companies grow at different paces, and we're still learning uh, to deal with that. I think also we have to recognize that innovation uh, is uh, 
also almost exponential in, in terms of growth. Mm-hmm. And technology change is faster than we've ever done it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and consequently, many of our institutions, our laws, our regulations, um, are often find themselves behind. Mm-hmm. And we have to ask ourselves, for example, um, the antitrust laws that we put in place back when we were regulating uh uh, steel companies and oil companies, are they really designed to deal with the digital age, which is global? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, often our antitrust laws focused upon being sure that there was fair pricing to the consumer. But many of the services today uh, take search, the consumer pays nothing. Mm-hmm. So I feel that we need to go through a period of regulatory adjustment. And I think we're starting to work through that. Mm-hmm. I think we have to be careful. We do not want to destroy innovation. Mm-hmm. We don't want to uh, inhibit risk taking. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, we have to keep an eye on the effect on society that corporations could have. Mm-hmm. And you can see that we're going through many of that uh, those kinds of issues today. For example, take the area of corporate governance where uh, now uh, many people are questioning whether or not the purpose of a corporation Mm -hmm. should be more than just making money for shareholders, Mm -hmm. that it should also be focused upon the environment Mm -hmm. and society and governance and sustainability. So yes, I think that uh, the scale of innovation, Mm -hmm. the impact of some of these enterprises uh, requires us to step back Mm -hmm. and take a look. Uh, at all our constituencies, we're going to have we're going to go through these kinds of changes, and uh, we went through similar changes in the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. We had similar impacts when the printing press was mm-hmm. invented, but now it's faster, greater impact, mm-hmm. and uh, we're, we're, we have to catch up with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I am hopeful that with good government. Um, and good transparency and with an effort to focus on, um, you know, the, the, the overall good of society, but at the same time to maintain the benefits of an innovative capitalistic society that we can, we can continue to improve and yet mm-hmm. innovate. Hmm. Yeah. Are there any areas specifically that you're really excited about in the next 10 or 20 years in terms of innovation and how that could transform our lives? Well, I think that's a, it's an interesting time in innovation today. You could take you could take a somewhat jaundiced look at it and say, what has all of this innovation done recently? Uh, you know, if you look at the Internet of Things, if you look at uh, we're living in this digital, virtual world. Is it really improving the way we live, or is it just making us communicate faster? Uh, I think that uh, there was a recent article written uh, in the New York Times about whether or not where we are from an innovation perspective is is somewhat a new form of an age of decadence. Uh, Uh, I think you can debate that. But the point I'm making is technology goes through cycles. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do think that uh, we uh, have to take into account several areas that are of interest to me, given these challenges. One is cybersecurity. The other is data privacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other is the impact of artificial intelligence. 
Um, uh, the other is the impact on the way we educate our children in our universities. Mm-hmm. Uh, right there, uh, you've got a, a load of issues to deal with. Add to that the fact that technology is basically a, a global environment. Mm-hmm. When you have um, political systems that uh, you know are, are maybe putting up bridges a little bit or putting up walls, how does it impact immigration? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the things that made this country great, how do we sustain equality and opportunity? Mm-hmm. So uh, many of the old questions are back on the table. But the answers are going to be different because of the pace of technology change. And that's what I see coming. I find it very exciting but very challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as well about kind of your your day-to-day priorities and how you decide to, to spend your time or what, what aspects of your work are most uh, fulfilling and enjoyable to you. So, yeah, kind of h- how do you choose what what's important to focus on? Well, that's a wonderful question. I, I obviously think about the law firm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I joined the firm, there were what, three or four of us. Today, there are 850 lawyers, 16 offices, uh, and uh, a, big, a big business. And, and how to be sure that our culture uh, remains consistent mm-hmm. to, to make it not only a great place to work, but to put out the best product possible. I think about, um, you know, I still enjoy working with young companies as well as very big companies and keeping that balance. And uh, I'm focusing more and more on some of the issues we just discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, spending a lot of time in the world of corporate governance, mm-hmm. and and really trying to develop uh, a very cogent uh, philosophy mm-hmm. of governance for our enterprises. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot on my plate. Yeah, yeah. Kind of on that note of corporate governance, like I think for me, uh, the reason business has always like appealed to me is because of the huge impact that companies can can make without all the bureaucracy of of government, right? But do do you think that companies and corporations will be able to? to take into account things other than like financial maximization, right? Like we see the, you know, we're on a ticking clock with climate change and other huge challenges, right? And if if your responsibility is just to pay back your shareholders, like as as a global economy, like we're just not going to stop climate change, right? So is it possible for corporations to play like a leading role in creating a, a future for everyone? Uh, that's the question of the day. Uh, one of the major questions today in the world of uh, U.S. capitalism is what is the role of the corporation, uh, or better put, what is the purpose of the corporation? And uh, uh, we can spend a long time discussing that, and I'm spending a lot of time thinking about it. Um, but I do think that's uh, an old question that is renewed because even the beginning of corporations, the question was asked, what does the public get as the quid pro quo for limited liability that you enjoy as a shareholder of a public company? Mm -hmm. And today we're asking what that quid pro quo should be. Mm -hmm. And I do think that corporations can and should be good citizens of the world. Uh, I think that they can still innovate, they can still make money, they can still grow, but they can also have sound impact. Mm -hmm. I think you can correlate good governance with good shareholder value. Um, 
I think we have to figure out what that emphasis is today. Mm-hmm. We've lived uh, since the 1970s under a legal governance regime that basically says that the primary fiduciary duties of a board of directors of a corporation is to enhance shareholder value. Today, we see a rhetoric uh, that is somewhat changing, mm-hmm. that it should be not only shareholder value, but stakeholder value, customers, employees, society. And we're working through that. Mm-hmm. So it's a great question, uh, and it's something I think we have to address. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the other area you mentioned there was thinking about uh, the culture of uh, the, the firm as well. So that's obviously very important, but also a little bit like squishy and hard to define, right? So how do you create like a positive culture that will last after you leave? I think, first of all, you have to pay attention to it. I, I think that it's one thing to have a vision, mm-hmm. and that's uh, kind of where you want to get to. Mm-hmm. Then you have to have a mission, which is how are we going to execute to get mm-hmm. to that vision? But then you need a culture, which is the platform that ties it all together. So for example, in my law firm, our culture had many elements. It was based on diversity. It was based on transparency. Mm-hmm. It was based upon consensus or management. It was based upon ethics autonomy of practice and so on. And I think uh, that was something I learned very early on by representing companies because every board meeting I attended in the early days and even today, I always asked, how does that relate to my business? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I learned that you need a strong culture Mm -hmm. that has these elements to sustain growth. And I think that I think that that's becoming all more important today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I, I believe that social media, the internet, the speed of growth, the globalization of the world, the disparities that are happening in the world, the disruption that is being caused by technology, which has some negative impacts that we have to deal with. All of that, I think, uh, you have to address by having a sound cultural strategy. Mm-hmm. And earlier you brought up uh, education and kind of the, the changing models of higher education. And so kind of bringing Santa Clara into the picture, like what do you think Santa Clara's role in, in relation to Silicon Valley is and, and can be moving forward as well? Well, I I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about higher education. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm involved with a number of universities, certainly Berkeley. Uh, I believe that our educational system is critical uh, to having a good society and a free society and, and to deal with disparities that exist. Um, and I think our universities uh, are, are some of the best in the world, but they're challenged and, and uh, economic models are challenging. Uh, the cost of education is challenging. But it's critical. And when I think of uh, Santa Clara, uh, I, I find that uh, besides being a great campus uh, with wonderful faculty uh, and staff, uh, that the Jesuit philosophy upon which it's built upon uh, is, is very important. Uh, as I look at that philosophy, uh, focusing upon Uh, educating the whole person, focusing upon justice and ethics and integrity, Mm -hmm. I find that all the more important needed today. Mm -hmm. So I think Santa Clara 
brings something to the table that's very important. I think Stanford brings something to the table. I think Berkeley and all the others. But I think they're all unique, and I think we need that diversity. Mm-hmm. And I think Santa Clara's uh, philosophy, its Jesuit-based philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, is very, very important in helping us keep perspective mm-hmm. on the challenges that you and I just discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there is a role for that philosophy that's more important than ever mm-hmm. when we talk about uh, the whole person when we talk about social justice, when we talk about things like sustainability. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm very excited. That's why I am involved. I, I'm not an alum, mm-hmm. but I very much uh, believe in, this, in the university and, and putting a lot of time into it because I think it is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What uh, career advice would you give to college students? So, you know, a lot of my friends are currently kind of surveying the different options, considering maybe grad school or private sector, different, uh, different options for post-grad. But yeah, what, what advice would you give to like a graduating senior today? Uh, you know, I think it's really important to continue to aspire to dream. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's not important to have a career decision really early on. Uh, but I think what's important is to try to learn as much as you can uh, about uh, what is going on. I think that um, to maintain confidence uh, and and self-assurance, it's daunting out there, but it's always been daunting. Mm -hmm. But I think to be confident, to be open to change, Mm -hmm. uh, to really uh, develop a a willingness to follow your passion, uh, find out what really motivates you, Mm -hmm. and and don't be afraid to follow that. and I think be kind to yourself. Uh, there are pressures, uh, there are demands, there are changes, but um, every experience is a benefit. Uh, every experience is an, there's an epiphany in every experience, no matter the negative. And so I think a worldview, and I think having a philosophy that's based upon. Um, you know, being open and diverse and ethical with high integrity pays off mm-hmm. in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the last uh, bigger question that I'm curious about is what in your career are you most proud of? Well, I'm proud of being a part, uh, and I suppose at times a key part to the growth of this technology industry mm-hmm. and to the benefits that I think it's bringing society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm proud of the fact at the same time to uh, recognize the challenges and the deficiencies of it and still being excited to try to improve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a couple shorter questions that I like to ask at, uh, every guest at the end of the conversation. So first, are there any favorite places in the world that you've traveled to? Well, I, I've, I, I think I, I always go back to Italy. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I love Rome. I love Tuscany. I love Paris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I studied abroad in Bologna, yeah. actually. So got to see a bunch of different places in Italy and Europe for the first time about a year, year and a half ago. So, yeah, that's it's a pretty pretty cool place. Impossible to recreate the food here, let me tell right. you. Right. <laughs> I agree. Um, if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? I would say that it's time to pull together. 
and uh, remember that the philosophy of this country, uh, equal opportunity for all, uh, is, is still the best system and will get us through the challenges that are coming. Mm -hmm. and, and finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? A beautiful, peaceful day on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for Thank you. this conversation. Appreciate, Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.